First of all, as we begin this morning, I just ask for your indulgence a little bit. I apologize. I'm fighting a cold or a little bit of something. So uh, hopefully all will go well for us here this morning. I've been saying to our music teams this morning, whether one of the praise teams or the choir, I'm not a good singer anytime, but at least if they needed a bass today, I could probably be more helpful than what I usually am. So I just put that out there as we get started. You might remember that from last week, we started talking about what it means to see Jesus And as our guide to seeing Jesus, we've been using and are starting to use the Gospel of John. And one of the things we recognize is that in a world that increasingly does not see Jesus, but actually wants to underneath uh, whatever skepticism there, there may be, there's a lot we can learn about seeing Jesus in the Gospel of John. You might also remember from last week, children can be incredibly helpful in helping us to see Jesus as well. It's one of the reasons that Jesus says to have the mindset of a child, because they often see things that you and I as adults may not see. I was just talking with Jen this past week. I did not know this had happened. I, didn't, I don't even know how this came up in our conversation, but Jen and I were talking with some other people, and she shared with me that back at Halloween of this past year, there was a little kid who had come to our door, and he was about four years old, and he was dressed up as a horse. And when he came to our house to get some treats and do the trick-or-treat thing, he was getting the candy from us, and he looked through our doorway, which is glass, and he could see through the door, and he saw our dog, Duke, who at that time was wearing this big cone on his head because he had recently had some surgery. And so we called it the cone of shame in our household because he couldn't hardly do anything with it, but he had this big white cone around his head. And this little four-year-old dressed up as a horse, as soon as he saw that and he was getting the candy, he pointed his finger through the door at our dog, Duke, and he looked at his mom and his eyes got really big. And he's like, look, mom, they even dressed their dog up. He's dressed up like, a, like an astronaut. Isn't that so cool, mom? And so he did that. And you know, we just kind of laughed because that was obviously not our intent and that was not on our radar at all. But kids see things that you and I don't. So part of me hopes that as we go through this series, we can have the mindset of a child in some ways and see what we otherwise normally may not see. It's also a great time for us to go through this series because obviously we celebrated Christmas not too long ago. Christmas focuses on the birth of Christ. We're not quite to Lent, which focuses on the death of Christ, and then ultimately Easter, which is about the resurrection of Christ. It's great to celebrate the life of Christ right now because we're in between those two times of his birth and his death. And so we're looking at the life, the events, his actions, his words, and all of these things help us to start to see Jesus. And this time between Christmas and Easter in the church here is a time that's actually called Epiphany. And Epiphany literally means a manifestation of a divine or supernatural being. We use it more broadly when we say something like, oh, I just had an epiphany, which usually means, oh, I suddenly get it, something I didn't understand before, it's hit me, now I get it. Well, as we go through this series together, epiphany in the church means the manifestation of Christ. And John shows us how this manifestation of Jesus occurs through his life and through his actions, which helps us to better see Jesus ourselves. So part of my prayer for this series is that we together will experience an epiphany of Christ. That is to both see his manifestation among us, but suddenly a seeing and a comprehending that we've never had before. We begin to experience epiphany and this manifestation of Christ when we look at who Jesus is, as described specifically in the Gospel of John this morning. We started that last week looking at Jesus in the beginning as the Word, and now today we're coming and asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to see Jesus as the Lamb of God? And I'm guessing at least a couple of us have heard somewhere along the line, Jesus referred to as a Lamb. But when we hear that, I mean, what does that really mean? And I would think for most of us, we fall into one of two camps. Either we're like, 
We give no thought to it. Sort of like, Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's very nice. Pass the salt and keep on moving. And we give no thought to it at all. And if we do give some thought to it, there's got to be a part of us that's like a lamb. Why in the world a lamb? Why not some other animal? I mean, in my case, why not a cow? I grew up on a farm. I'm kind of partial to cows. I think they're great animals. I like the Chick-fil-A commercial where they're saying, eat more chicken. I like cows. So why not a cow? Why not a lion? Something strong and kind of regal. Why isn't Jesus compared to a lion here? Why not something like a chameleon? Chameleons have cool powers. They can do things lots of other animals can't. Why not a chameleon? Why not an eagle? They're beautiful, they soar, there's something majestic about them, or you can put in your favorite animal, but Lord, why a lamb? And how does seeing Jesus as a lamb help us to actually see him for who he is? To understand that, we're going to look at the context of what's happening for John here this morning in chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. So if you have your Bibles with you or an app on your phone, I invite you to open up with me or look on your phone with me. We're going to be looking carefully at these verses, verses 19 to 34 of chapter 1 of John. And we're going to be looking, and part of what we start to see immediately is there's a group of people coming up to John the Baptist, and they're asking him, who are you? What's your identity? Who do you see yourself to be? And at first glance, this conversation seems pretty harmless. But if we look in verse 19, we hear these Jewish leaders come up to John, and they start asking him these questions about who he is, and we're not sure what to make of it at first, because it sort of sounds like, hey, Johnny, uh, we're the leaders around here. You're starting to make quite a stir out here in the wilderness, uh, you know, with the way that you dress, with all your camel hair and your leather belt, and you're doing all these things, and people are coming to hear you and see you, but John, you know, we're the official guys. What gives? What's going on? So it might sound kind of like it's even lighthearted in nature. Maybe it sounds like it's not that big a deal, but it's actually way more intense than that. Because the scriptures tell us that when these Jewish leaders come to see John, it's referring to the Jewish religious establishment. That's who these leaders are that are coming to see him. And it's ironic because in the lifetime and the ministry of Jesus, it's these Jewish religious leaders who are most in opposition to Jesus. Anything that gets outside of their understanding of how the religious ideas were supposed to work and be carried out, it causes doubt in their mind. And they're not sure what to think about this John guy. So they are not casually questioning him. Actually, it's an interrogation of sorts. There's an intentional probing. If you look in verse 20, they come and say, John, tell us who you are. Are you the Messiah? John says, no. Verse 21, well, then are you Elijah? John says, no. Verse 21, how about the prophet? And again, John says, no. And they asked about this prophet guy, because if you look in Deuteronomy 18, 15, back in the Old Testament, there's a prediction of a figure coming who was kind of a prophet figure, somebody great like Moses. And that's who they have in mind when they ask about this prophet idea. And then they get to verse 22, and there's a growing sense of agitation for these leaders. They're getting a little ticked because they keep asking these questions, and they're not really getting any information. And finally, if you look in verse 22, they're like, well, then who are you? Because we have to go back and we have to give our boss an answer. So tell us so that we have something to take back with us. I want us to keep this conversation in mind as we go throughout our time together here this morning. And remember this conversation because it helps us understand in part how John sees himself and therefore how John then is going to see Jesus. When we look at this figure of John the Baptist, scripture makes it really clear there was an element of popularity and fame to him. 
except that he came up outside of the religious institutions of the time, meaning he was never approved as a legitimate or credited rabbi. He wasn't trained in the right religious institutions or places. He wasn't accredited in any official way. And yet, verse 23 says that many came to hear him out in the wilderness, which is a way of saying they actually left the city. They left what they were comfortable with. They were even willing to go out into the wilderness, out where they weren't as familiar, just to see and hear John. And when they went out to hear John, what was it that John was preaching? He was not preaching about himself. He was preaching about the Messiah, the coming of Christ. Now, to you and I, that may not sound like a very big deal. But lots of people at this particular time in history, they believed there was a Messiah who was going to come. They were looking for a Savior. And specifically in their minds, that meant a Jewish leader who would come and rally the people against the opposition of Rome. And as we've already mentioned here this morning, there was also a prediction that there would come somebody like an Elijah figure who would come before the Messiah, almost as a front runner to him. Malachi 4 or 5 said that before the Messiah comes, there would be a front runner, a forerunner like Elijah. So they had this idea in their mind. And some people were like, maybe this John the Baptist guy out there in the wilderness, maybe he's the one. If he's not the Messiah, at least maybe he's this Elijah figure, this forerunner to the Messiah. And here's where the conversation that we just looked at a few moments ago comes into play. We see that the authorities then send out this investigative team to find out exactly who John really was. And verse 19 says it this way. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, only to go out and find out that John did not proclaim to be the Messiah or Elijah figure, or even a significant prophet. John says no to each and every one of those things. Now notice in this, John is not saying anything great about himself. However, he's doing great things. He is baptizing. Lives are being changed. People are coming to hear him preach. They're going all the way out in the wilderness to hear him preach. And yet, I mean, so we know there's something significant about John. But John either doesn't get that or he doesn't believe that. He doesn't see himself doing anything great or anything significant. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. He never says anything good or great about himself. He's so focused on preparing the way for Jesus, which is great, that he consciously or unconsciously doesn't say anything about himself and realizing there's anything significant or good even about himself. It's all about Jesus, but almost like John is like oblivious to the fact that he's doing something good or significant himself. He almost seems to not see himself as being very valuable or worth a whole lot. But listen to what Jesus himself says about John. I invite you again, if you have your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter 11, a few books before John, Matthew chapter 11, verses nine through 11. Jesus himself says this about John the Baptist. Well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes you did. In fact, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not been one born greater than John the Baptist. And if you accept it, he is the Elijah figure. Now that's some pretty strong language. He says, of all human beings born of women, last time I checked, that's like all of us. So he says, John the Baptist is the greatest of humans born of women. That's pretty significant. That's a pretty big deal. And on top of that, Jesus says he is the Elijah figure. 
So in Jesus's mind, John is pretty important. Jesus believed that John was a person of immense historical significance. But notice, again, either John the Baptist didn't get that or he didn't believe that about himself. All he says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not an Elijah figure. I'm not the prophet you're looking for. So he would appear to not see himself as very important. It's interesting when John the Baptist is preaching, he's incredibly vague. He doesn't share much at all about himself. He's very low on himself, but he's not vague at all about Jesus. He's very high on laying out for us exactly who Jesus is and helping us understand how important Jesus is. And we hear this in verse 27. If you look there with me, he says, he, referring to Jesus, is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, we need to pause here for just a moment to understand what's going on here. There's a writer named Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist and anthropologist. He teaches at the University of Virginia. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And he says in that book that all cultures have something about them that everyone in that culture considers disgusting, gross, gross, filthy, stomach-turning. It's so foul. It's so degrading. Everybody gets that. Well, in this culture with John and Jesus at the time, the thing or one of the things that everybody just understood to be disgusting and filthy and foul were feet, and specifically feet that had been walking around in the dust and the dirt and the mud all day wearing sandals. Now, you and I tend to hear that, and we don't think a whole lot of dust isn't great and dirt isn't great, but don't forget, this was also a time when animals would have been roaming all over the place, and so people would have been walking right through their manure all the time. And honestly, there was probably times they were walking through human feces because there would have been a lot of just uncleanliness there at the time. It was considered so gross and so disgusting to to have to untie someone's sandals or to wash their feet at the end of the day that there were actually rules in place that said even servants of people did not have to wash their feet or the feet of other people that way. It was too degrading to have a fellow countryman come along and undo their sandals and wash their feet. So keep that in mind. And now look at what John says. He says, as low as it would be to untie the sandals of Jesus, John is saying, I'm even below that. I'm not even worthy to aspire to reach up and untie the sandals of this one Jesus who is coming among us. And what John is trying to do here is destroy the categories. It's his way of saying, this isn't just some great king. This isn't some great rabbi. This is someone special, so high above you and I, we can't even fully understand it. He's shattering the social categorization of that time. It's his way of saying he is so high and I am so far below. We can't even hardly comprehend it. It's incredibly strong language on John's part. And that was John's view of Jesus. So he puts Jesus up here so high and in contrast, puts himself so low. And to some degree, that's a good thing. But don't forget, John himself is doing some great things. He's baptizing people. Now, baptism for you and I is a big deal. But especially in this time, it was radical in nature. It was a really big deal because to be baptized in this time, the general understanding was that the Gentiles were the one baptized. Why? Because they would have to convert from their life outside of the people of God and saying, I am now going to join in covenant community with the people of God. The people of God, though, weren't being baptized at this time, only the Gentiles, because Gentiles were considered unclean dogs. They were considered that unless they are baptized and made clean, only then could they be brought into the family of God. 
But now look what John is doing. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it's not just the Gentiles who need baptism. John says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Not just the Gentiles, but Jews and religious people. All of you, the people of God, you need to be baptized too. This is such a big deal and such a big change. It would not have been lost on the Jewish religious establishment at that time. He says, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not sure we realize how radical of a switch and notion this is. Because what John is saying is that all of us are unclean. Salvation is needed by all of us. All of us need grace and merit given to us because none of us on our own can earn our way into the family of God through Christ. We all need somebody to help us. Therefore, we all need baptized. So John is preaching and he's doing these radical things and yet he doesn't even get his own goodness or greatness. Again, he says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah, not even a prophet. And all of that then begins to make me wonder, so how is this possible? Here's this guy doing incredibly great, significant, big things for the kingdom of God. And at the same time is completely blind and oblivious to just how good or great he is. I mean, John, are you that humble? Or John, are you that blind that you don't see that God is using you to do significant, great things? How in the world do these two things go together? You're doing great things and yet you seem to not realize you're somebody special at all. How do the two fit together? John gives us the answer. If you look with me in verse 23, John says this. John quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he says, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. A voice. This is so brilliant. It explains how he can be powerful and humble at the exact same time. How he can do amazing, incredible things and be nothing at the exact same time. These authorities want to make John somebody great. They want to make him a prophet or the Messiah. And John says, no, no, no. I'm just a voice. That's all. I'm nothing. But with my voice, I point to the one who is something. I am nothing. But with my voice, I point to the greatest figure in all the universe. By myself, I am nothing. But with my voice, I point to the greatest one that there is. And we can be part of it. As we think about this, I want to ask us to think about this for just a second. As I describe this, this reality of using our voice to be used by God to be something great and nothing at the exact same time, is it possible for you and I to do a similar thing as John? Is it possible for you and I to experience using our voices for God to both do great things and be nothing at the same time? Is it possible for us to walk in this tension dynamic as well? And the answer is absolutely. How? We must behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And once we start to see Jesus for who he is, then like John, we can use our voice in sharing him in the world. Now, I have shared all of that with you up to this point. Everything I've shared with you actually leads us to the sort of the crux of this passage. And I want you to look at it with me. The heart of this passage, verse 29 we hear these words because it's all led up to this point. 
the conversation and John out there with the religious establishment and suddenly has this moment. And this is the moment we've been waiting for. Verse 29, it says, John looks up, look, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This word, look, translated this way in English, it's actually really cheap. It doesn't get at the full meaning. The word look in Greek actually means behold, which means to gaze upon, to think upon, to grasp. It means I really finally get it. So here's John out here doing these baptisms. And the one that he's been talking about, the one he's proclaiming about, all of a sudden he looks up and he sees Jesus coming. And he says, behold the Lamb of God, which means I'm not just looking at this one. Suddenly I get it. I realize who you are. And I wish if this were a movie, this is the point in the movie where we're going along and the baptisms and there's this conversation. And all of a sudden John looks up and he sees Jesus. I wish we could freeze frame everything right here. And you know how in a movie they'll like freeze somebody and then they'll like go back to like a flashback or show you what's in their mind. And they can take three, five, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever, doing that. This is one of those moments. I wish that when John looked at Jesus and beheld him, that we could freeze frame right there and kind of go right into John's mind because there's a whole bunch of things happening at once. The moment that John sees Jesus in this context, here's what would have been going on in his mind as he proclaims him the Lamb of God. What John knew about lambs, he knew from the Passover tradition, where centuries earlier, the Israelites who had been slaves in Egypt with Moses had been set free by Pharaoh. But you remember, Pharaoh wouldn't let them go at first. And finally, God said, I'm going to send a plague so terrible, so horrible, he will finally let you go. I'm sending my angel of death, and it will kill the oldest son in every single family's home. Now, in a patriarchal society where everyone's hopes and dreams in the family were placed on the oldest son, this was the most terrible horrible judgment they could think of. But when that happened, God also said to the Israelites, sin is a debt. And you Israelite people, even though you're my people, you are sinners too. So when the angel of death comes, the only way you're going to save your firstborn, even though you're my people, is if you kill a lamb and you sprinkle the blood and put it on your doorpost And then only then will the angel of death pass over you and you, your oldest son, will not be slain for your sins. And this eventually became called Passover. The Israelites did not pay for their sins. How? Because of the blood of those lambs. Now, a thoughtful person at this point might say, really, that's it? You kill sweet, loving, innocent lammies and that atones for your sin. How in the world is that possible? How can that be? The other thing that John the Baptist would have known was this, that in addition to the Passover, it had been prophesied there would be one who came as a lamb, a mysterious figure that we have called the suffering servant. Specifically, if you look in Isaiah 53, it was predicted that there would be one who would come and save the people from their sins as a lamb offered for all. It says it this way in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, Each one of us has turned our own way, oppressed and afflicted, led like a lamb to the slaughter. So just picture for a moment, all of this is crashing down upon John. In that one moment, he looks up and he sees Jesus. And all of this history and knowledge converges at this point. And John is like, I get it. 
Behold, look, it's the Lamb of God. It wasn't just a little animal that died for our sins. It's this one, the Lamb of God, God's only son. The reason why our firstborns no longer have to die because God offered up his firstborn. And in his coming, he is taking away the sin of the world so that this strong one will become weak. This king is at the same time a lamb. This messianic king comes in weakness. He is the lamb who is the king who goes to the cross and pays the penalty for you and I so that evil can be destroyed without destroying us. And all of this in this moment hits John. And he's like, "Ah, I get it. Epiphany. I get it. John's greatness was this. He grasped and he saw the greatness of Jesus better than anyone else. That's what made him great. Just that he saw the greatness of God himself more than than anyone else. And because of that, he could then use his voice and be filled with a gentleness and a greatness and an enthusiasm and a joy of God because he knew the one he served and that's where his attention was fixed and he recognized that greatness in God. Now here we hear all of this, but this is what I'm about to say is what I want you to take with you today. I hope as much as possible, but I mean, especially this, because this blows my mind. In that moment, John sees the greatness of Jesus better than any human being had up until that time. Nobody had seen Jesus better, more clearly than John in this moment. But, but every single Christian since that time, since John the Baptist, has the opportunity to see Jesus even more clearly than what John the Baptist did. Think about that for just a moment. Because every single person who believes the gospel today actually understands better who Jesus was than even John the Baptist did. John the Baptist, in that moment when he saw Jesus walking toward him, he didn't fully understand the cross yet. He didn't fully understand the resurrection yet. He didn't really know, but we do. We get to see that. And you know what that means? That means that the gloriousness and the greatness and the joy that flowed through John the Baptist because he saw Jesus can flow through to an even greater capacity through us because we can see even more clearly than John the Baptist. That is absolutely amazing. And how does it happen? By beholding, by seeing the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And I mean more than just see it. I mean grasp it and rest in it and dwell on it and understand it. That we need a Savior and must be saved by grace through the Holy Spirit that God sends among us. Can we see Jesus this day like this? Because when we behold Jesus for who he is and we see Jesus for who he is, there's a whole bunch of things that happen in our life. And I don't have time to go through all of those, but I'm going to give you three super quick ones. When we really behold and see Jesus in our life, number one, we will finally have an identity that does not crush us. In Christ, we can finally have a free identity. That means the better we do, the more we don't have to count that, okay, now I'm okay before God. And the worse I do, the more I'm going to have to do to make up before God. It doesn't work that way. Now my identity is only based on Jesus, not on what others think of me or how good or how bad I do. Secondly, we will gain an identity that will not crush others. 
Because any achieved identity is based on relative status. It's always based on how we compare ourselves to others. So I'm only good at my job if I'm better than other people. I'm only bad at my job if other people do better than what I do. I love sports, but the one that, right now with the NFL playoffs and college teams playing each other in basketball, the only way you're a good or bad team is compared to how you do compared to somebody else. And if you beat them, then you're good. If you lose to them, then you're bad but not in this identity in Christ. When we realize we are sinners saved by grace, all of us are put down and humbled. And when we realize that Jesus loved all of us, that he died for all of us, we are at the same time lifted up and exalted. And so our identities do not crush others. And finally, we become a humble and powerful voice of Christ ourselves. To the degree that we seek to let Jesus Christ speak to the world through us, to the degree that we are willing to spread the gospel, to share what we see, to this degree, God's greatness will flow through us. And because the gospel is power, it can change the world, it transforms lives, and to that degree that we share and we let the power of God's Holy Spirit flow through us is the degree to which the gospel will come alive, not only in our own lives, but to all of those whom we have the privilege of interacting with. So that it doesn't matter how good or bad we are, how strong or weak we are. If we let this power flow through us, God will be the one who moves. And when that starts to sink into our minds, oh my goodness. Wow. Can you see Christ? If not, why not? What needs to happen to help us to see and to behold this day? As we close this morning, I want to show you a picture of somebody who recently saw Jesus. John is talking a lot today about baptism and Jesus is the Lamb of God. He says everyone needs to be baptized when we go from not seeing Jesus to seeing Jesus. Recently, we had a great, great celebration. Back on Christmas Day, we celebrated with a young man named Mylon. And Mylon, uh, just to put it succinctly, is a young man. He's had no connection with church uh, for decades because he had barely been hurt in the church. And uh, there was no connection for him. We got to know Mylon through the Axe Network that Mitch Marcello is leading right now. And this particular group, they meet on Sunday afternoons into the early evening. And they meet over at the fitness factory. And they share together as a group of guys and they explore what does it mean to be a people of faith or to be a person of faith? And what does it mean to start to see Jesus apart from you know, the baggage that can oftentimes happen in a church setting? And so Mylon, as he was going through these relationships and getting to know some of these folks, he reached a point where he literally said, I want to see Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be baptized. And I want to share with you that for Mylon, when he came to be baptized among us, it's always a significant, it's always a big deal to do a baptism. But it was so beautiful when Mylon came among us because he didn't know what to expect. Remember, he had no connection with church and what it was like. And so the day that he came to be baptized, he brought a whole other backpack with him of extra clothes because he wasn't sure if he would need them. Like if he was going to be totally soaked or not soaked or like, what, am I going to need these clothes? And he said, can I look at the questions with you again? And we looked at them not once, not twice, but three times because he was serious about the covenantal promises that he was going to be making. And they weren't just a flippant thing to him. They meant everything to him. And so we reviewed those questions incredibly carefully. And then we shared together in the baptism. And again, any baptism is special and is significant. But this for me was unique in that when I baptized Mylon, this is literally what happened. I said, Mylon, I baptize you in the name of God the Father. And I laid my hands on his shoulders as he, and as I put the water on him, I could feel the tenseness in his shoulders and how uptight and unsure he was. 
And then I said, and I baptize you in the name of God the Son, and I put my hands on him a second time, and I could start to feel a relaxing in his shoulders. And then I said, and I baptize you in the name of the Holy Spirit, and I put my hands on him as the water came upon him. And I'm telling you, and those who are present saw it as well, he just completely relaxed and smiled and was filled with new life and joy in that moment. I could literally feel the the transformation happening in him as the baptism occurred. Why? Because he was beholding Jesus, gazing upon him and receiving the new life that only Christ can offer. He was beholding the lamb of God and what that lamb had done for him. And he got him and he understood him, and he welcomed him. And that is my prayer for us, that this day we could have an epiphany and see Jesus and behold Jesus as the Lamb of God. Amen.